Welcome everyone to Working for the Word, where you get a background look at what goes on in a Bible translation. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Phil King, and I'm excited to have him on the podcast to share a little bit about his journey and what he's been involved in so you can get a a broader vision of the world of Bible translation going on in other parts of the globe that I have not been involved in. So welcome, Phil. Hi. We would love to wish you a happy birthday. He's so generous to actually join us on his birthday. So happy birthday. Thank you so much. And we are also meeting with him. I'm in Spain and he's in the UK right now, right? Yep, that's correct. Right. Phil, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background and where you're from. Okay, so yeah, I'm here in the UK at the moment, uh, just under the shadow of Gloucester Cathedral, which is a beautiful old building. Um, But I grew up in the middle of England um, and I guess as a child interested in maths, so I did a maths degree um, straight after after school. Hmm. During my maths degree, I heard somebody um, came from Wycliffe and said that Wycliffe was really interested in people who were the sort of people who like doing maths, who like solving oh. puzzles, who like um, crosswords, who have that kind of mind. It's like, oh, wow, there's actually an organization where you could be involved in mission and use the kind of gifts that um, I had or the kind of personality that I had. I never saw myself as an upfront person um, or, or an evangelist or a preacher, but the ability to be involved in a, a mission for God that involved using those kind of more analytical or um, problem-solving skills was pretty awesome. Um, so I went straight from my maths degree into working with Wycliffe on a one-year kind of trial-out um, experience in um, Papua New Guinea. I was trying to mm-hmm. decide, am I going to be a maths teacher or am I going to be a Bible translator? So I went over there to be involved in supporting expatriate translators who had linguistics complexities in the languages they were working with, trying to help them um, work out writing systems and things like that. Mm-hmm. I went out for a year, enjoyed it quite a lot, but I thought I'd still better check out the maths thing, came back and did maths teaching for six months and then knew, right, I definitely needed to go down the Bible translation route because the maths teaching wasn't going to work out. Then we went to Bible college and while at Bible college, I discovered also this love of, um, I guess I'd always had a love of the Bible, always a love of the Old Testament stories, particularly mm. that got into Greek and Hebrew then when I was at um, Bible college and then went back out to Papua New Guinea with Wycliffe. Some, in there I got uh, married as well to my wonderful wife, Kate. Um, mm. We had our first son, Simeon, as well. Uh, and then went back out to PNG where I started out working in linguistics, but gradually got more and more involved in mm-hmm. supporting Papua New Guineans, looking at... Papua New Guineans there who are passionate about being involved in Bible translation, passionate for seeing people from their communities engaging with God's word more deeply. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of uh, Papua New Guinean pastors, people who'd been involved in translation projects for a while and who are saying, we want the skills, we want to be able to do this, to be empowering our people to interact with God through his word. Mm. So that began to become more of a passion for me. And I think 2004 or so I started getting involved in doing a bit of Hebrew teaching there and was inspired by the people who were teaching it with a really uh, unique method for teaching with Papua New Guineans um, mm-hmm. based on their kind of approaches to learning. 
you think about Melanesian learning styles, Papua New Guinean learning styles, uh, which are primarily oral rather than um, written. So they would right. the whole method of teaching Hebrew through um, oral approaches, which is quite different to the way that I'd learned it at Bible College. Hmm. I went sort of inspired by that, and I went back and did my PhD in um, Hebrew in the UK for a couple of years while we were having our second child, wow. and then came back to PNG to finish it off. And also, I took over then as the coordinator for training Papua New Guineans um, for Bible translation um, kind of awesome. work. Wow. At that point in um, Papua New Guinea, that we had a sort of training program teaching Papua New Guineans who are involved in the um, Bible translation movement, mainly how to do translation. So it's a simple or oh, step-by-step how to do work on translation principles. But the vision that we had, a number of us, was how could we set up a training program that would enable Papua New Guineans at whatever stage they were, whatever their commitment, whatever their previous education, to take the next step of involvement in um, the translation program with the aim at the end of it that we could be um, enabling a Bible translation movement in Papua New Guinea that is thoroughly Papua New Guinean so that people at all stages, um, at all levels of Papua New Guinea. So you've got Papua New Guinean translators, but also uh, advisors, facilitators, consultants. Mm -hmm. And that means you're thinking about things at a very low level, like critical thinking skills. How do we equip people in that and using computers? You've never seen them before, perhaps. Uh, But at the other end, it means how do we think about equipping Papua New Guineans to be uh, consultants and trainers, uh, resource people, Mm -hmm. exegetes. Um, So I was trying to put together that whole program and we set up an institute, the Pacific Institute of Languages, Arts and Translation to try and build together a whole load of um, components there. Um, And I took particular responsibility with teaching on the biblical studies side of things and on linguistics Mm. side of things, developing Hebrew courses, Greek, um, Old Testament, uh, but also discover your language kind of modules to try and um, equip people, as I said, at all those different levels. Uh, and then working with Papua New Guineans to become trainers as well. So could we, for example, in the Hebrew setting, could we develop a course where we're teaching Papua New Guineans Hebrew, they're developing, and then they're coming back and helping being assistants, and then gradually taking increasing responsibility to be the trainers of others. Yeah. in Hebrew, even though we're not seeing them going to um, sort of Western-style seminaries. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So that was, that was the kind of thing that we built up um, until, at, and I was very involved in that through to about 2015, uh, when we returned to the UK. Uh, for the past five years, then, I've been um, very involved in the training program here in the UK that's serving people across Europe who want to get involved in Bible translation, language development, literacy and education, scripture engagement work around the world, um, Mm who will come through the program here. First of all, I was heading up an MA in field linguistics. Um, Mm -hmm. Now I'm the director of the School of Language and Scripture at Moreland's College. Um, We run an MA in language, community and development, trying to equip people for that work, but in the context of saying that all this kind of work, whether it's scripture engagement, literacy and education, uh, whether it's uh, Bible translation and linguistics, in the context of of working in healthy ways with communities, understanding what community needs are, um, 
and being equipped to engage in healthy ways with those communities in these particular sort of technical areas. Yeah. So that's me. That's my life history in a few minutes. That's great. Thank you. So tell us a little more about Papua New Guinea for those listeners who may maybe not, maybe aren't familiar with the whole uh, world over there and uh, the needs over there. The first uh, thing we always say about Papua New Guinea is where it is. Very many people are right. totally sure. There's a whole <laughs> load of um, countries in the world that sound like Guinea, and we used to get right. our post Christmas post in April, having been missent to Guyana or Equatorial Guinea or um, <laughs> Guinea in, in West Africa. But Papua New Guinea is um, just north of Australia. It's uh, the second, well, the mainland island of which half of it is in Indonesia and half of it is Papua New Guinea is. I think the second largest island in the world by some uh, standards anyway. If measuring. Oh, wow. Um, and then there's a number of many islands, um, smaller mm-hmm. and larger islands. Of the population may now be 8 million. I'm not sure. It's been sort of 7 million or so when um, I was last looking at it. Mm-hmm. And um, But Papua New Guinea is a, a country of lots of mountains, fast-flowing rivers, rainforests, um, partly because of these geographical features, partly because of social features, um, PNGs ended up with the highest amount of linguistic diversity of anywhere in the world. Um, wow. With People reckon the number changes from day to day, but somewhere in the region of 830 different languages um, spoken yeah. by those kind of 7 million or so people. Yeah. Uh, which means that you're talking about... Um, pretty small language groups for a lot of them. Um, uh, but mm-hmm. what's really interesting is that those language groups have stayed viable and stable um, for many years, yeah. even despite the diversity, despite increasing uh, connections between people speaking one language, people speaking another language, despite more uh, sort of trade links and all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, the linguistic diversity has carried on. Okay. Um, so the big challenge, if you're thinking about Bible translation in Papua New Guinea has been certainly while we were there. How do you think about um, reaching or engaging with all the different communities who are asking for the Bible in their language? Another thing about Papua New Guinea, I guess, to make clear is it's, um, you know, sometimes you see those maps with the percentage of Christians in the country and Papua New Guinea is always on those dark blue colors, um, Mm. something like greater than 92% Christian. which is a fantastic uh, heritage. So wherever you're, um, any village you're going to, you're going to find um, a church there or more than one church. Um, and it's had a real history of um, yeah. missions engagement um, in different ways over the years, um, which brings a real richness and a real desire for, from people to be engaged with Bible translation. Sure, sure. And one of the challenges is that the Bible... Um, obviously there's a lot of availability of the Bible in English um, for supporting um, Christian growth and maturity. Um, there's the Tokpisin Bible, the language of wider communication is Tokpisin. That was completed in 1989, which okay. is a, a whole Bible and is a, a great resource. Um, right. But then for local languages, there's often not very much available uh, and people are seeking it's when they hear it, maybe in, in the language that they're speaking at home, they suddenly tweak to something new that they hadn't picked up when it was in somebody else's language. 
or a language mm-hmm. that was just a language of, of trade. I mean, yeah, we all speak this, but actually when it's speaking a language that we speak around the fires, and it makes me think, oh yes, you know, that does have an impact on how I live my life because this is like someone's talking to me about stuff that's, that's important that really uh, impacts the way I, I right. live in my life. Right. Um, so yeah, that's um, something about PNG. Also, such small language groups, um, a lot of them in very rural contexts. Uh-huh. Um, in any language group, you're not going to find typically a lot of people with um, university education mm-hmm. or even to finish high school. Um, if you have got somebody who's finished high school or university, the expectation would be that they should be going to a city and um, making an, an income that they're using then to send back to their rural community to support people. Right. Um, and certainly not getting involved in something like Bible translation that um, doesn't really pay. Right. Um, so one of the challenges for us in terms of training people was you'd find people with a passion for the Lord, a passion for the church, um, but limited formal education. Or if they right. did have formal education, then they were typically had been away from their um, home community for so long that they would have in some ways lost connection with the languages mm-hmm. that was being spoken now. So yep. trying to, when we're thinking of training Papua New Guineans and getting them engaged in Bible translation, how do you make the most, both of the educated ones who've perhaps lost some connection with their mother tongues, or, or how do you make the most of bringing up to speed? I mean, exactly. you have really gifted guys who are gifted language learners who are, um, passionate for the Lord, but just hadn't had the opportunities of um, formal education mm-hmm. that many of us in the West have benefited from. Right. I think that's one of the the, the ongoing complexities of the world of Bible translation that I find myself trying to help people understand more and more because of globalization and um, how it's completely upended the way that most Westerners traditionally think about Bible translation and the, and the biographies and stuff. Um, mm. You're constantly juggling these kinds of uh, things. And uh, we, I think we face the same thing in Equatorial Guinea where uh, probably maybe you use the same term uh, brain drain where you have this tension where if people go out of the country to get further education, they never come back. So the people who rise to the top, who are the brightest, who could be the leaders, who could be the movers for uh, Bible translation, for example, um, they get used to the Western way of living because they had to go outside to study and then uh, they they just don't come back. And then the uh, people who do come back, they've lost touch with their culture and their language. So that's tough. Yeah. Yeah. So some similar issues. Yeah. So I think when I personally think of Papua New Guinea, that's where the real missionaries go because I think historically movies like uh, Itao and others have really uh, left this impression on people that this is where the frontier of monolingual kind of, you know, the, the kind of stories that we love to read in biographies happen. Um, <laughs> these think, monolingual tribes that are Stone Age and that's the only place that they're left in the world, right? And, and maybe Indonesia. 
Yes, and it's um, interesting. There's a documentary that we've used as part of our program here um, called My Year with the Tribe, where somebody clearly has that kind of opinion and is going to go and try and find this supposedly Stone Age tribe, the Korowai in Papua, which is the other side of um, Papua New Guinea in Indonesia. Uh-huh. And gradually the movie reveals how he goes and that actually these guys are going and trying to, when they hear that a expat is coming, they go and set themselves up and sort of take their clothes off and act like they're Stone Age. But he goes back <laughs> later on and realizes actually, no, they're completely different. So we have to be aware uh, of the kind of stories. And so we show that to our students, that what are your preconceptions about Ouch. what you're coming to do and the kind of people that you're meeting with? And I think wow. it's really important for all of us who are potentially involved in mission to think carefully what are we really trying to do? Yeah, I think absolutely. part of the, the reason that's, um, that image came from PNG is that it was, um, there were places in Papua New Guinea that hadn't no or very limited connection with the uh, wider world until the 1930s. So whereas the lowlands of Papua New Guinea had, you know, ships had been coming and going, the centuries of connection there but up into the highlands um it was gold explorers in the 1930s who Mm. first went up there and rather than just finding empty valleys or rainforest they found huge valleys full of lots of people Mm -hmm. who had never seen someone with white skin before who had never seen a airplane before or um Mm -hmm. and so this kind of first contact, and that was, I guess, very exciting in the 30s and 40s. So oh, yeah. um, it, it opened up the door, all sorts of missions wanting to come in. And uh, yeah, this excitement of trying to connect with people who hadn't um, mm-hmm. hadn't had contact with the wider world, hadn't, of course, heard of Christianity before. Um, what was that going to be like? And that led to, led to a very interesting context in Papua New Guinea because the engagement of Christianity came at the same time as engagement with the wider world. Um, so there's a mixture between Christianity and the cargo and things that came on planes, the yeah. first use of uh, like a, a metal knife or clothes mm-hmm. or, um, and there's some conflicting, um, what's it, mixing it of the messages there of sure. Christ- becoming a Christian is the same as getting access to all this kind of cargo. Oh um, yeah. That, Although Papua New Guinea has developed so much in the past um, 80 years, or however long that is, 90 years, um, you there's still some of these um, beliefs that are, that are holding sway and why people are involved in Bible translation, for example. We're involved in Bible translation because at some point, then the book's going to be finished and then we'll get the cargo mm-hmm. that the okay. white man has. And so yeah, it's always... An, thinking why why are people doing this what's what's the motivation yep. um, yeah um yeah and so when it opened up as well um Papua New Guinea had this because we had actually in the wider world thought a bit about done some at least critical reflection on our missions practice by the um, 30s 40s 50s they kind of divided the country up so different missions went to different areas rather than all like let's sing someone giving all sorts of conflicting messages so you'll find some areas that are primarily lutheran some areas primarily catholic some areas where the anglicans went some areas where the seventh day adventists went oh wow um so you find sort of different um denominations or different christian expressions particularly yeah. strong in different areas of the country 
They did the same in Mexico back in the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can't well, remember what your question was at the beginning of all that. Oh, is why people want to go to Papua New Guinea. It's, I think, nowadays to think of Papua New Guinea having Stone Age cultures where nobody's been before is a bit um, patronizing and un unlikely. Right. Uh, everywhere. In, there's nowhere really in Papua New Guinea where you can find a, what I call an unreached tribe or something like that. You know, right. the gospel has spread widely throughout the country. Um, right. But certainly it has a, it's more recent than most other places in the world with its contact with the Western world and contact. Um, sure. With Christianity, certainly in the islands. Right. And there are certainly missionaries who have written books and who give a lot of talks around the world who have had remarkable experiences there. And uh, I think one of the things that it's easy for people to be disillusioned by is they get inspired by one of those people sharing their talk. Maybe that person was there back in the sixties or something where it was when it was really different and went to a monolingual people group. And, and now, you know, this generation of future Bible translators say, Oh, that's the talk that inspired me. That's the story that inspired me. I want to go do that. And then they arrive and they realize, wow, this is not, not even close to that world anymore. So anyway. Yeah, I think it's really important to think why, I mean, I don't know who's listening to this podcast and what, why you're listening to it, but I think it's really important if you're thinking about Bible translation, why is it you want to be, Doing right. this. And there are some people who are thinking, I want to go to that community that's never heard about Christ before, never heard the gospel before. And I want to make them a Bible translation because then that will bring the transformation and that, that will save the community or something. Whereas I think actually Bible translation is a very different kind of activity, um, especially in Papua New Guinea. You've got churches that have been going for years, but the real impact of Bible translation can be in the area of growth of discipleship. It's about right. um, supporting people who are Christians or committed to following Jesus, but what's the impact that's really making on their life and, and how is that helping them grow and develop into a, a real, um, the kind of understanding that, and the depth in the country, I guess, of, right. of Christian reflection that we benefit from. Uh, from hundreds of years of reflecting on the Bible and looking at our world. We've got, we've got giants in the UK who have spent years trying to bring those two things together. Mm -hmm. What would it mean for enabling that kind of reflection on the Bible and contextualization to a Papua New Guinea context? And part of that is having uh, a Bible that's in a language that actually connects with the culture that you live in. Yeah, And that's where I see I mean, both a product of a Bible translation, enabling people to do that in an ongoing way, but also the process of Bible translation, as you see pastors wrestling with how do I express this Hebrew or Greek or topicing concept into my culture, into uh, the language that I work on as they wrestle with that. Mm -hmm. That's where some of that process of contextualization and thinking, well, what does this really mean for my culture? Right. So that takes place. Right. Well, for the sake of time, I want to go back to uh, your involvement there in training people with biblical Hebrew and talk a little more about that. Uh, as the listeners of this podcast know, my wife and I are, are definitely involved in that 
in Mexico now, and um, we're just getting started. You've, you're a veteran in doing this, and I, I would love to hear you expand a little more on what that process was like and some of the, some of the things you've, you've seen as outcomes um, and maybe some of, share some of the resistance that there was to that because um, naturally the, with a new idea like that, with something that's forward thinking uh, that hasn't been done before or hasn't been done a lot, there's going to be people who think it's not a good idea. And so, yeah, maybe you could start speaking to that one specifically. Yeah. A little while ago, you talked about Papua New Guineans and this sort of image of monolingual um, hmm. Papua New Guineans. And I'm, I'm not sure if that's accurate either, if, how accurate that's ever been. Because um, I think Papua New Guineans, one of the things that's amazing about them is the number of languages people speak. And... Um, mm -hmm you'll find, I mean, it's not uncommon to say someone has to speak five different languages. And it's because in the history of the people have actually respected other languages, certainly in the lowland areas, um, and gone and traded with them and gone and learned their language rather than one language dominating, one language community dominating or taking over another one. So as I understand it, you know, if somebody wants to trade with the next village or wherever they go and they sit down in that um, village and they hang out in the marketplace and they gradually listen and they pick up how people speak and they try it out and they begin to learn another a language and they become fluent in a, mm. in a variety of different languages around them. So mm -hmm. the thing is that Papua New Guineans are excellent language learners. That, that's yeah. the evidence when you look at how many different languages they're able to function in yeah. um, compared to me as a monolingual Brit really. And um, I, I only grew up functioning daily in one language, whereas these guys are functioning in so many. Yeah. And yet people have said about Papua New Guinea, well, there's no point in teaching them biblical languages because they're just not going to get that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the context in which I came into Papua New Guinea, I've mentioned before, standing on the shoulders of giants. There are some fantastic people there who are long-term experienced translators in, in PNG who are really questioning that narrative that Papua New Guineans couldn't um, be engaged in uh, biblical language. And they're saying, it's not about whether Papua New Guineans can learn other languages or not, or anybody. Right. It's about how you're going to go about trying to do it. If you come in and say, you've got to learn languages the way that I learned biblical languages, which is probably a pretty uh, dry way of doing it, where you yep. sit down. I remember when I learned Hebrew, first of all, you know, the, we were, I was at Bible college and we were doing like one day a week, and you sit down on the first day and open a book, and it tells you, all the names of all these letters and all the rules for when you put a dot here or there and how, what a syllable is. Mm -hmm. I think we had lost 75% of the class by day two. So we, oh, yeah. Because um, this is just too hard. It's, it's a different script. It's got all these funny words. But that's not, it's not how we actually in real life go about learning languages. Um, mm -hmm. We don't typically go and try and find some book and learn about how We start as children or even as um, teenagers when we start maybe learning a second language, or when we're trying to function as a society where we're learning a new language, it's done through trying to interact with other people, trying to make sense of what they're saying. Um, right. And so how can we uh, leverage or make use of these natural language learning abilities that we have to try and sure. teach? Sure. Um, ancient languages. That's the question that these um, guys have been thinking of and that they're, 
it's been inspired by uh, Randy Booth and the work that he was doing in Israel as well. They spent some time with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of things that we did in the program that they were running, it was partly based on um, Randy Booth's Living Biblical Hebrew for Everyone, which I don't know if people listening to this podcast have heard about before. It's a great resource with 10 different lessons, each with 100 pictures in it, and you hear a word and you look at a picture. So it's associating images with sound, and it gradually gets more and more complex yeah. as the uh, the course goes on. And, and that connected well with people. We'd listen to those, act them out, um, listen to those and do the book, and then we'd act them out. And we spent sort of half a day doing that. But the other half a day, we focused on biblical narrative. So we start right from the first morning, reading out a section of the Bible in Hebrew, and start off with have one member of staff reading out, another member of staff acting out. And then after Mm. we'd done that a couple of times, we'd read it again in Hebrew and take um, various of the participants acting different roles. So we focused on stories from Elijah, starting with 1 Kings 17. And... um, the excitement in that is that we have we have Ahab, we have Elijah, so people could act out those as Ahab does various uh-huh. things as Elijah responds. Um, but also the, the ravens are key participants in the first seven verses of uh, 1 Kings 17. So we have people very excited to be the ravens bringing bread <laughs> and, um, meat to Elijah at different times. But by the end of the first morning, people know and they could associate with those words you know, this is when the ravens come out and it's got the bread and it's the meat and I know what these things mean and it's bringing them to him in the morning and the evening. And they knew uh-huh. they had a context for that in which they could respond and, and act yeah, out yeah. what's being said. And that just gradually builds up. And then we went into the Shunammite widow and um, her son and her son dying and then um, moving on towards the conflict with the prophets of Baal. Mm-hmm. Um, gradually building up. And because doing the same stories again and again every day, they're internalizing these biblical stories in Hebrew. So yeah. uh, by the end of a week or two, you know, we could be actually reciting through 1 Kings 17. Um, wow. It's actually really helpful for me as well as a teacher that I can still keep doing that. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and then coming into the second week, we're starting to read in Hebrew. So we also did some alphabet lessons a little bit easygoing in the uh, first week. But by the second week, then we're coming to try and read a Hebrew text because it is important if you're going to use it for Bible translation that you can um, engage with written Hebrew text. But making that transfer from saying, now I'm going to read 1 Kings 17. Well, actually, I already know what 1 Kings 17 says because I've just about memorized it, but now I'm reading it on the page. Right. So it's a good literacy principle that you start reading, learning an orthography, uh, and developing reading skills for a language that you already know um, exactly what it sounds like. Um, so I think that really worked well um, for helping mm-hmm. people become familiar with, with how to go yeah. about reading. So we had a six-week course that was read about me and the uh, Jim and Anna Henderson who had um, okay. taught it before me, which was based okay. on centered around these um, narratives from Story of Elijah from One Kings and the materials from Randy Booth. Mm-hmm. giving exposure to various uh, sort of a inductive approach to grammar and yeah. vocabulary. Yeah. Why six weeks? Um, just curious because that's always the big debate, right? How much time should you invest in this? Yeah. Uh, my feeling, my experience was that by four weeks of immersive teaching for these Papua New Guineans in this method, that's mm-hmm. when they, it, it twigged. Yeah. I can cope with the alphabet. 
I can work out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Really feel comfortable with an alphabet. Okay. So, and it was about four weeks in that we actually give people a, a Hebrew Bible. We use the Sound of Unreaders Hebrew Bible, um, mm. and uh, which has the advantage that it, at the bottom of the page, it has the words that occur less than a hundred times. Right. Um, and that was sort of a, a, a prize or whatever, a recognition of, of where they got to with reading by that stage. Sure. Um, and then to, if you've got four weeks and you've got to the point of reading, then the two further weeks on that basis of reading to really develop some, yeah, confidence in handling this and, and beginning to work out some grammar and things like that. Um, right. To, to see how, or to begin to recognize a possessive suffix or, you know, something like that. Right. And I think that worked well um, for the kind of students we had and the kind of time frame they had. I think if you stop at four weeks or three weeks, then there's a danger that you forget everything or it just ends up being a bit of a, a mix in your head. Sure. Um, sure. And that's, so before I came, they'd been doing a three week, three weeks, one year, three weeks, another year, that would be another approach. Um, oh, okay. Wow. And so splitting, splitting things into three week chunks. What we ended up doing then was a six week beginners course. Okay. My theory was after six weeks, if you did nothing else, at least you've got the understanding that the Bible wasn't written in English at the end of it. (laughs) And for me, that's one of my key, key goals for every translator in Papua New Guinea. So I'd say every translator is worth doing this Hebrew course. If for the minimum goal that you understand the Bible was not written in English. So when you're translating the Old Testament and you come across a word, you're not going to look in your English dictionary to find out. I'm not sure what that word means or what does this sentence mean. You're actually aware, yes, behind this, there lies a Hebrew text. And the question I need to be asking is, what, yeah. what's the Hebrew going on? And it's amazing how long people could be worked in translation and they still have that, if they haven't realized that that's the thing that they're doing, but they're still thinking about the English rather than asking the question, what's the original language here? Yep, yeah. And they'd have some, after six weeks, they'd have some tools right. to begin to access that. And they might see some Hebrew writing on the page and think, yeah, that's another word that I can learn or that's, that's not going to scare me now that that's just something that belongs to the expats or the clever people. That's something that I can engage with if I see a commentary or a note that says, uh, right. So there's a minimal goals. And obviously my hope was that not everybody would stay there. Um, Mm -hmm. but after six weeks, we were hoping people can decode the text. So feel familiar with reading it, feel confident that they can, read somebody who's talking about something in Hebrew and not feel like this is something totally beyond me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and remember that this is really the text that we're dealing with. Then I built up a, a four week follow on from that. So I'd have people in August doing a six week thing. And then in November come for a four week, which was then a grammatically based ah. thing. So saying, you know, you've done all this, you've internalized all these Elijah narratives. Now what do we call these? Yeah things what was the grammar going on here um and beginning to pick that apart i wrote a book um called getting to grip with hebrew verbs trying to say okay. how do we go about understanding the hebrew verbs that we've come across before sure with the idea that in this four-week course by the end of it they've actually learned some of the terminology that and some of the grammatical concepts that they'd been deductively inductively whatever word is aware of um from the earlier thing and so then they could go on potentially mm-hmm. to a hebrew course um 
in Jerusalem or somewhere in the wider world and I see. be completely lost because that's looking for how do you do this transfer if people have just done this six week right uh, very inductive exposure to the language sort of picking it all up in a natural language sort of way how do you then go on to connect with the sort of seminary training where it's all done in terms of complicated PLs, HIFLs and sure. med hay verbs or whatever how do uh-huh. you how do you make a bridge so I created this four week course to try and then um, Gotcha. Bridge between those. And again, it was based on a, a Bible passage. So we worked through Ruth in that, but also, so we had grammar and internalizing Ruth. And, um, right. Yeah. So it was more of a building block to get people or a bridge to get people to eventually study further in Jerusalem, is what you're saying. If, if they um, wanted to or they could. That was a, I mean, my aim was to enable people to be yeah. able to be translation consultants and translators right. better in the mm-hmm. Papua New Guinean context. So we had a program that was trying to equip people who had been involved in translation for a long time, but who are going to be translation advisors or consultants or trainers, but they needed right. to have some Hebrew or Greek to get into that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was the prime goal. But then also... It'd be great if they could, a lot of the things in Papua New Guinea is how do you create this pathway through so that people can actually have access to higher education? And that's really important. One of the challenges from my Papua New Guinean colleagues from the Bible Translation Association of PNG, who I work with, mm-hmm. in my early days there, I said, what are you doing? As So we work for SIL in PNG, um, which, what are you doing as SIL? You've been here for 50 odd years, and yet you haven't enabled any of us Papua New Guineans to get through to higher education to get master's degrees or PhD degrees. We've been working on all this translation, but you haven't invested in us enough that we can mm-hmm. get on to these higher degrees, which is what we really need if we're to have credibility and to really be able to set up a, uh, a sustainable translation movement in, in Papua New Guinea that's led by competent Papua New Guineans. Um, right. So that was, that was such a, a burden for me while I was there to think, how can whatever we do be feeding in the, the right sort of um, skills and progression pathways that people could access mm-hmm. higher education and fulfill those kind of dreams that they had. Right. Um, and you mentioned that you asked the question, what kind of resistance? Um, yeah. And so there, there was some kind of resistance to that. Or why are we, we've got other aims. We want to just get the Bible translations done. Um, sure. you know, people say that kind of thing. People come in with certain mentalities that this is about just getting a translation finished. So then, uh, transformation can happen or the end can come or whatever it is what uh-huh. your eschatological framework is uh-huh. rather than thinking what we're doing is about uh, supporting a country of people uh, communities who are keen to develop and grow as disciples of Christ through being able to read the word um, yeah. which is a different kind of thing which is a long term goal so I'm thinking in my courses I was thinking down four generations I had people who were fourth generation translators um, wow. who sat at the desk of their dad, who sat at the desk of his dad doing uh, the New Testament. And Wow. Um, thinking in that terms, what, what am I doing now that will build capacity for you and your grandchildren and the situation that they're going to be in their abilities to be right. engaging with the Bible and the biblical languages and translating for their, contextualizing for their communities that they'll be living in. Yeah. Um, so trying to have that perspective. What are we doing that affects the grandchildren um, mm-hmm. rather than get it done and get out um, kind of mentality. Yeah. Uh, the, the other kind of thing that I heard from people coming from the outside was, well, we didn't need, I don't know Hebrew. 
and I right. do fine in my translation just based on um, commentaries. reading commentaries. Yeah. yeah, I don't know what you think about reading commentaries. For me, um, and working with Papua New Guineans, I've had cases where I said, try and read this commentary. The actual the skills required in trying to make sense of some British commentary Mm-hmm. A very, very high level in terms of oh, yeah. understanding English and everything else. Actually being able to pick up Hebrew and engage with Hebrew is in some ways a, a less challenging task. Right. In just because we find it easy to read a commentary. Right. Which I even do, really. But, I mean, that's one level of thinking. Beyond that, what is the real... It's incredibly patronizing to say, I didn't need it. Right. And what we were finding is again and again, people from the Papua New Guinean church saying, this is what we want to do. I mean, this is how we want to grow. We want to be able to engage with God's word in the original languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so developing these courses was in large part in response to that desire from the church. Right. Um, and trying to respond appropriately to that. Sure. Uh, whatever other colleagues yeah. were saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. Um, I want to respect your time. I wanted to end this asking you about relevant resources that you would recommend to anyone in in the field of biblical studies, translation, or linguistics. Yeah, I've just been teaching uh, Hebrew in a week here, which is a whole other thing um, Mm -hmm. compared to the Hebrew in six weeks. And they keep asking me what a a good resource is. So uh, more and more, it's what can we find on our phones? What kind of apps can we get hold of so I've been trying to find sure. um, what sort of things people can use so I've looked at the step bible thing from Tyndale House which appears to work well on a laptop um, as a free resource in terms of the kind of things to videos to watch I've been really excited with your videos coming out from <laughs> you and Beth um, so I pointed that to my students and as many people as I can um, when we started watching through some of those which I think is really helpful yeah. Randy Boo's resources, I still think, are excellent, and now they're available online, mm-hmm. um, which is really good. So I get my students to look at that as well. Um, there's a free free trial bit of the Randy Boo's materials that you can use to get into the alphabet. Um, gotcha. Cool. So, so I recommend that to people. Yeah. There's a few resources, uh, and the Zondervan Bible, I still think, is nice as one of the best tools for Reader's Hebrew Bible. Yeah, absolutely. To improve. Absolutely. You mentioned the first one you mentioned was the Step Bible by Tyndale House. Yeah, it's a Hebrew um, website. I think it's called Step Bible. Okay, I didn't know about it. And it provides access to a lot of ancient versions and um, uh-huh. ancient commentaries and that kind of thing. There's all sorts of resources in there that you can um, get into. Oh, fascinating! So that's something you want to look at. Yeah. Um, yeah thank you. It's always a challenge of finding what can you find that's free that people can look at in the class. Um, right, right. Yeah, step stands for scripture tools for every person. Right. Well, Phil, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so, so, so much for making the time to be with us and share from all the experience. And thank you for your your service in Bible translation. I know probably a lot of sacrifices you've made in, in, over the years to uh to be teaching and, and training and, and giving to others in this way. So thank you for that. God bless your ministry down the road. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's been really great to chat with you. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Speak to you again. So until next time. 
So as always, thank you so much for listening. Here at Working for the Word, we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists ultimately to help you treasure the Bible, go deeper into it, and become like the man of Psalm 1.